I asked for that song um, because we're going to be talking a little bit about sin, which is no fun. Uh, no one wants to talk about sin. And I get it. I do. I, I empathize. I sympathize. Um, you know, we, we all, uh, we have long work weeks. Um, we have challenging home environments and situations. Um, life is hard. Life is, um, is very challenging. In fact, uh, in first world nations, uh, the United States and Japan are the busiest uh, people uh, that live on the planet Earth. We are filled up constantly um, with things that are distracting us, that are re- requiring our energy, that are beating us down. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's like, oh, I, I'm going to be doing all this stuff, and I'm battling, and I'm struggling, and, and boy, wouldn't it be nice on Sunday morning, I drag myself out of bed, I get out to church, and wouldn't it be nice if someone just told me that I'm loved? You know? Uh, instead of, you're the worst. You're terrible. By the way, uh, give me 10% of your money. Is that really what we want? Is that really what we need? Isn't there maybe a way that we could uh, avoid talking about sin? Uh, in, in fact, I mean, if you think about our culture as, as, a, as a whole, it, it seems like very, very few people want to talk about sin. And for good reason. No one wants to feel worse than they already do. No one wants to get beat down more than they already are. In fact, what we really need, we really need is a word of grace in our lives. And yet, we're going to talk about sin, because <laughs> I'm stuck with this book, this holy book that God gave us, and then you just keep flipping there, and he keeps talking about it, and we can't avoid it. And so, I, I, so, we're, so we're going to do it. But, but it, it brings up a question, though, right? I mean, God's got all this stuff in there about sin, 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 sin. But is it really that important? What is so important about talking about sin? What is, is it, could we not, could we not, just instead of doing all the stuff about sin, couldn't we just talk about love and grace? Today is the perfect and the penitent, and we are going to be talking about that question, trying to answer that question. What is so important about sin? Couldn't we just talk about love and grace all the time? And before you make that little like, well, of course. Because there is an easy answer to this question that some of you might have thought, well, we've got to talk about sin because uh, we know how stories work, right? And stories work like this. There's a problem, you know, um, I don't know, the evil galactic empire has, you know, oppressed all the people of the galaxy, right? And then there's, someone's got to deal with that. Luke Skywalker, your friend and mine, um, becomes a Jedi, learns the force, you know, falls in love with his sister, and then repents. Uh, a lot of stuff goes on in that film. And then at the end... At the end, right, at the end, there's a solution. So you can't have, you can't have the, 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 the scene where everyone's got the medallions and we're all happy if you don't have the problem to begin with, right? And so we might think, well, we've got to talk about sin because we've got to have a, some bad news in order to get some good news. I agree that that's true, but that is not all there is. In fact, when we're, when we're walking with John today, I think we're going to see that there's more than that. There's something deeper than that, a really important thing about sin that matters, that we've got to be thinking about it. We've got to be investigating it, seeking it out, looking for it, and if we do, if we do, I think, I think we're going to see that we can start to have in our lives the eternal life that John has been talking about. In in the book, he's trying to tell us how to live the life of the age to come now. And interestingly, in order to do that, we're going to have to think about sin. So let's, um, let's look at the text today. This is 1 John 1, 8 to 9. Again, this is my translation. I'll point out um, a couple of places where it's a little weird uh, if you're used to like the New King James, but 
Uh, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And so the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, the one who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and so cleans up all our disorder or all our unrighteousness, if you're familiar with the New King James. Well, that's kind of weird. Um, if we say we have no sin, in our culture, not a lot of people talk about sin. So very few people walk around going, I'm sinless. That's not something that people say very often. And yet it seems to be something that John is concerned about. Now, uh, historically speaking, if we're trying to figure out exactly who John's talking to and his culture and his context, we've got to be a little speculative. Uh, John doesn't exactly say who he's trying to talk about here when he says, who's got sin? Uh, we have no sin. But there are people that he's met, and, and they have said this, and we're not exactly sure what they might have uh, been thinking, but we can speculate a little bit. Chances are there were some people in John's congregation in the churches of Ephesus in the early first century or the late first century who had had these mystical and powerful experiences with God. And they'd gotten really, really close to God, or at least they thought they had. And because they'd gotten so close uh, to God, they, um, they got uh, kind of a special uh, deal from God where no longer were they um, sinning, or at least this is what they thought. And if you've heard of, the, of Gnosticism, uh, Gnosticism is a little bit later. These are probably before Gnosticism. But it's people who have some kind of special knowledge, special insight, and special experience that makes them think that they've got no sin. Well, that's not something we're normally familiar with. So I did a little research. I've been trying to, trying to characterize it. How is it? Is this something we hear? Is this something that's in our culture? Is this something real? And if so, what does it look like? And what kind of people are out there saying I have no sin, and why do we have to look out for them? Well, um, so I, I got three. I got three, three people. I gave them some names, right? Um, and the first one is the most probably like what John encountered. I call um, this person, th- these are perfect people, by the way. Because if you've got no sin, you're, it's Ferris Bueller. I should have put a picture of Ferris Bueller. If, if a perfect person in high school, have you seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? This guy, I mean, he's living the dream. Uh, everything he does, he's really popular. In fact, when the kids find out that he's sick at home at school, like they're, they, they're collecting money to save his life because he's such a great guy. Um, there was a kid in my uh, high school named John Rainey who I thought was basically the Ferris Bueller. He was a perfect person. Um, I mean, fun to look at fun to hang out with, everything worked out for him. Uh, these are people who have no sin. Well, the first kind of person is called the antinomian. That's uh, Latin for against law. Um, it's just, this is just from the Christian tradition. These are people who, who um, kind of like probably a little bit what, what John encountered, they, they think that the laws don't apply to them. Got a picture of uh, probably the most famous American antinomian. Um, you can tell that she's not a lot of fun to hang out with. Um, this is Anne Hutchinson, born in the 1600s. Uh, she was a, wow, what a woman. Uh, our, our church is a free grace church, um, and actually our, our theology is actually uh, derived from her pastor. Uh, her pastor is John Cotton. Uh, he was a Puritan minister, and John Cotton taught that we're, we don't live under the covenant of law, we live under the covenant of grace, and that we're freed up in grace. And Anne, uh, was a, she thought that she was a prophet, and, uh, or prophetess, and so she, uh, she took kind of John Cotton's teaching and then just sort of ran with it, like went crazy. She's like, not only are we um, you know, not bound to the law, but in fact, because we have faith in Christ, everything is lawful. And you might hear an echo of, of Paul's teaching that all is lawful. In fact, Anne thought that uh, she, as a person, could not sin because of her special faith relationship with God. Um, 
Now, I think probably one of the reasons that she kind of went off the deep end here is that uh, she lived in a culture that was um, pretty oppressive, and we'll talk about it later, and she was probably really upset about that. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so they, uh, they convicted her of heresy, which you could do uh, back in the 1600s, and uh, they exiled her from Massachusetts Bay Colony. I think she ended up in, like, Connecticut, and she had this uh, homestead where her and all of her children and relatives lived out there. Um, there were free to do whatever we like lifestyle, and then uh, about a year later, um, some Native Americans came and burned the place to the ground and murdered everyone inside. So it didn't end well for her, uh, the, the antinomianism thing. But that's one kind of way that we could say, I have no sin. This is the person who says, well, I've got a special, this is the first thing in your note sheets, I've got a special relationship with God. And because I have that, what normally would be evil becomes good. Because I have a special relationship with God, things that normally are evil become good. This is uh, the first way that someone might say they have no sin. Um, typically, in American Christianity, this has been associated with cults. And typically, with what we would think of as sexual sin, sexual devi- deviancy. Someone will say, well, I'm super close to God, and I don't want to name names, but... Well, anyway, so there's uh, people who then suddenly, like, you know, one wife, not enough. I gotta start racking those up. Um, you know, eight, nine wives, and that's okay because God and I are simpatico, right? God and I are friends, and, and because I have faith in Him, I, I don't need to uh, abide by the same sexual norms that, that most folks have to, right? And that's typically how this um, comes out in American history, and, and typically with cults, and especially religious cults. It doesn't have to be Christian, although it tends to have been Christian or derived from Christianity in our culture, but anyone who's like a spiritualist, and because they know the divine, and they're, they're in deep communion. They're free to do things that you're not. In fact, they're not only free to do them, they become good because these people have something special, some special connection to the divine. That's the antinomians. Not probably what we're super familiar with. But here's one that I think we are. This is called the relativists. Now... Our former president, uh, Barack Obama, um, in 2004, he was, uh, he was kind of an unknown. Like, he'd been a, a lawyer and a professor, and then um, he, he worked with uh, communities to, 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 to agitate for justice. And then suddenly, out of nowhere almost, he, he uh, bursts onto the political scene, right? And uh, he, he was kind of, there, people were very confused as to who he was. In fact, in 2004, he was running for, I believe, U.S. Senate, uh, maybe State Senate, I can't remember. But, um, and, and he was from Illinois, uh, or he was living in Illinois, and, and people were curious about who he was. And so a, um, a reporter who um, did the, the religion beat for, I think, the Chicago Tribune, maybe, uh, she, she sat him down in a coffee shop, and, and she... And she had an interview with him, and it was a really long interview. The whole thing is available. You can, you can read it. And it's, it's really, it's a tremendous moment where you see a politician, and, and, and one that really uh, relates a lot to us. He has this moment where he talks about um, following an altar call. He's in church, and Jesus is being preached, and he, he's you know, filled with the Spirit. He comes forward, he narrates this, he comes forward to be born again. He, he speaks the language of evangelicalism in this interview. He talks about being a Christian. And, and this reporter, um, she knows that he comes from academia. He comes from the secular world. He comes from a place that that's just doesn't talk about religion very much. And so she's bold. She asks him. She says, uh, uh, Brock, do you believe in sin? And perhaps shockingly, he says, yes, yes, I do. Again, this is not something that you would expect from a U.S. politician. 
And she says, well, what is it? And he says, I believe that being in sin is being out of alignment with my values. Being out of alignment with my values. Now, before, um, we might want to poo-poo that a little bit, and I will in a second. Um, but uh, to be charitable, uh, he, he's, he was, I'm, I'm a Christian, right? And so presumably when he says my values, he's probably talking about Christian values. Jesus, God, the Ten Commandments, that kind of thing. But uh, presumably that's what he means, charitably. Uh, but, but isn't it interesting, that word, my. Isn't that interesting? See, um, it, it's very easy to 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 go and say, well, instead of Christian values, my values could be, well, they could be any values, right? They could be anything that um, I, I deeply believe in, that I hold dear, right? And what's interesting is, as you know, because you're like me, you've grown up, you've gotten older, you've changed, you know that you're not the same as you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Interestingly, your values have probably changed as well. The things that matter to you, the things that you believe are good and true and important, those have probably shifted. Those have probably moved in some ways. They, they might be a little bit not what they were. And so if your definition of sin is being out of alignment with your values, well, that could mean a different thing at a different time. This could change over time. In fact, um, I don't know how familiar you are with modern psychology, um, but the goal of a therapist who does um, psycho, uh, psychoanalysis and who's trying to help uh, someone come to what's called psychological coherence, what the goal is, is to bring a person's behavior into alignment with their values. Okay? An interesting thing about modern psychology is that a modern psychologist is not allowed to tell you whether or not your values are good. Instead, the modern psychologist's job is for you to identify what matters to you and then show you how to live as though that's true. And if you do, you have no sin. Because you're completely in keeping with what you think is good and true and right. The interesting thing about modern psychology is that what you might do is you might be speaking to your therapist and you might say, well... You know, I, I really, I just, someday I would love to settle down and have a family, fall in love, you know, with one person and be with him or her for the rest of my life. But it's just the weirdest thing. I just can't help it. I'm, I'm, I just can't stop, you know, playing the fields, Tinder and whatnot. I just can't, um, I can't, I can't help myself. Well, maybe, maybe you should change your values to come in line with your behavior. That would be one way to bring about coherence, right? Because if you just stopped fighting it and just embraced who you really are deep down in your heart, well then suddenly you wouldn't be living in this guilt. You wouldn't be living in this, in this conflict. You finally would come to some peace in your personal existence. You would finally be free and happy. And everyone deserves to be happy, right? If instead of fighting, you could just follow your heart, then you would finally have what everyone wants to have. This is one way that I think is absolutely pervasive in our culture. And honestly, pervasive in our own hearts, if we're really honest. A way that we believe that we have no sin.
because it's strong in us to believe that if, well, these are things that are good and they're my desires and, and I should indulge them and I should be a part of them. And if I just did that, then finally I would be okay. I would finally have what everyone seeks. That's the that second thing. Um, sin is being out of alignment with one's personal subjective values. I, it's, I totally botched it on your note sheets. It says being in alignment, which is exactly the opposite. Uh, so scratch that out and say out of, or it won't make any sense. There's a, um, a, third, a third kind of person who has no sin. And I think is probably the worst. And this person is called the do-gooder. Have you met this person? Here's a, so, so the relativist is like, well, be, sin? Sin is when I'm out of alignment with my values. The do-gooder uh, knows that uh, sin is being out of alignment with God's values. And the do-gooder knows this. Thank goodness I took care of that. Wow. I was, so, uh, there, I, I was lost, but now I'm found. And uh, boy, it's, it sure is good to be holy. I know who God is. I know what he's like. And man, it feels good to be doing what he wants. Now, if you've met a Christian do-gooder, you know that they would never tell you, I have no sin. They would never say that. In fact, you'd be like, they'd be like, oh, they'll say things like, I'm the worst of all sinners, wretched man that I am. And be like, really, are you? I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. Dark, dark soul I've got. I'm like, okay, what what are some of your sins? And they'll be like, well, it was traumatic. But I was at dinner last night and... The, uh, the salad came out, and instead of using the outside fork, I used the steak fork. And instead of using the, the, the dull knife, I used the sharp one. I just tore into it like a mad person, and I shoved it down my... I, Forgive me, Father, I have sinned. I'm like, wow, that's not that bad. I mean, I... Well, just wait, though. It's been raining. Well, I washed my car before it rained. And then it rained. My car got dirty. I waited two whole days before I washed it again. Oh, how could you? The do-gooder says. You've met this person. In fact, I, I'm speaking, let's be honest, from experience here. I've been this person in my life. Where I, oh, yeah, I'm just the worst. I'm awful. I'm terrible. Blah, 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 blah. But secretly, I'm kind of like, but I'm also great. Hey. You know, hey. It's me. Uh, here's, the, here's the bad news, though. If you've met this person, you met me when I'm in one of my do-gooder modes, you find that, um, so I'll be like, you know, you'll, you'll be talking to me, and you start to feel bad about yourself. <laughs> You're like, boy, being around Tom makes me feel awful. <laughs> Why is that? Why do I feel like I'm the worst uh, whenever I spend time with him? Why does it seem like, uh, like, like he, just, he just, and why am I always feeling like I've got to stand up straighter when I'm with him? And I, well, it's, it's, it's because the do-gooder, that's how the do-gooder operates. C.S. Lewis um, has a quote, an awesome quote, uh, about the do-gooder. It's actually on the back of your note sheets with the text. This is what he says. He says, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under, uh, under, uh, live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some points be satiated. But those who torment us for their own good, for our own good, will torment us without end. For they do so with the approval of their conscience. There are do-gooders um, who don't come from the tr- Christian tradition. They know that they are deeply in alignment with God's values. And so they are willing to strap bombs to their chests and blow up people in a marketplace. 
And as they're about to do it, as they're about to press the button, they can honestly look you in the eyes and say, I have no sin. And we too, if we're honest, can fall into this trap. We too can become people who truly believe that we have no sin. The do-gooder believes that he is in alignment with God's values and you should be too. Back to the text. John says, if we say we have no sin, if we're antinomians or we're relativists or we're do-gooders, well, we deceive ourselves and so the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, the one who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and so cleans up our disorder. Confession is a strange thing. It's a weird thing. Uh, What's the value of confession? Why does John think this is somehow like the antithesis? Notice, by the way, know this, by the way, if you're, if you're a do-gooder or a relativist or an antinomian and someone says, you need to confess, you'll be like, what for? I already have. You've deceived yourself, right? So it's not as though confession is going to fix the problem. If you're a do-gooder or a relativist or antinomian, you're not going to be fixed by, by, by trying to confess because you're going to be like, I used the outside fork, I'm so sorry, not noticing that you're like insanely prideful. But John says, instead, instead, what kind of people we want to be, and he doesn't tell us how to become these people, but he says, if you want to be living the eternal life, living the, the robust, deep, full life of God, if you want to be doing that now, you have to have a practice of confession. Why? Why is that so important? What is it about admitting your guilt that fixes this, that prevents becoming a do-gooder, that, that suddenly uh, fixes the problem of being a do-gooder or, or an antinomian or relative? What is it about confession that's valuable, that's worthwhile, that's important? Well, the, 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 big, the big real issue if you think about what the antinomian and the, the relativist and the do-gooder all have in common, the one thing that unites them, what is it that they, they all do that, that, that's just, that, that sets them out, that makes them wrong? I'll tell you what it is. At the core of their being, they really honestly believe that they and God are like pals. It's like God's got his thing, I got my thing, we're totally, in, in, we're simpatico, we're in sync, and boy, it feels good, doesn't it? This is how they view God. And if you're, you know, a lot of relatives don't believe in God, but fine, okay, God's not up there, but I've got it figured out. Or you're an antinomian, and like, God's whispered in my ear, I can do whatever I like. Or, or you're, you're, you're a do-gooder, and you're like, yo, God, let's, let's, let's oppress some more people in, in your name. This is fun, isn't it? Like, it, the, you and God are buddies. He's your buddy Christ. You and him are, you're just, you're just pals. It feels good to be on, to be parody, to have parity, to be equal to God, doesn't it? The creator of the universe, the one who liberated Israel from slavery, the one who divided the Red Sea and put his three people through, the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart, the one who cast his people into exile when they sinned, the one who brought them back from exile, the one who gave his only begotten son that we should have eternal life. That God, that God is your buddy. And you're just friends because you're, you're just the same. Instead of recognizing that that God is majestic, that God is beyond, that God is holy and glorious and wonderful, that God's love surpasses any love that you could ever have, that God's grace is bigger and more gracious than any grace you could ever possibly give, that God is God and you are not. That is the problem with the antinomian 
and the relativist and the do-gooder is that they've forgotten fundamentally how different they are and how much God is beyond them. I, I use that word disorder for unrighteousness. Because that kind of mentality is when you've disordered how the universe ought to be. You become equal or even beyond God. And that is an essentially, fundamentally skewed, problematic way of living life, of conceiving of yourself, of conceiving of God. And if you do that, disaster will follow. Things will not go well. Because you will believe that you have no sin. The one who is faithful and just. You see, if you really recognize... Here's the deal. So we, I mentioned Star Wars at the beginning. Every one of us, at least, okay, not every one of us, but I, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, it's good to be Luke Skywalker in my own personal movie. That's how I sort of conceive of my life. It's like I'm the hero, and uh, y'all are, um, I guess, extras, or minor characters. I'm, some of you have bigger parts than others, <laughs> and those parts change over time. But really, who's the protagonist here? This guy, right? And so I'm going through life, and I'm like, I'm like, boy, yeah. Here's the crazy thing about confession. Confession can only come from a place where you recognize you're not Luke Skywalker, You're Darth Vader. You're not the good guy. You're not the protagonist. You're the bad guy. You're the problem. And when you come to life and you recognize that, that's fundamentally how you see the universe, then suddenly what changes about you? Suddenly you need somebody who actually has the authority to forgive you to forgive you. Suddenly you need God. Before it was like, oh, God's cool. Love that dude. Now it's like, help. Suddenly it's like somebody who can actually make this thing right. I need that that being to come and make this thing right. And I hope, I better hope that that being is faithful and just, faithful, committed, not going to give up on me. Because if I come at the world like I'm the bad guy, then I need the one who's not the bad guy, who can take care of it and won't give up on me even though I keep messing up. I need the one who's just, just, I don't love the word just here, um, it's for dikaios in the Greek, but uh, really I think upright or in colloquial way to to say it would be like a stand-up guy. You need God to be a stand-up guy who's so committed to righteousness and so committed to making things right that he's not going to stop doing it because you need it. Fundamentally, if you are the kind of person who confesses regularly, that means you are humble. This is the next thing on your note sheet. It says, um, in confession, we are humbled in the knowledge of where we stand in relation to God. And we are, this is so important, prepared to receive his grace. Most of us, um, most of the time, uh, don't feel like we need that much grace. And if you live like that, if you live as though you don't need grace, what's interesting is that you very quickly become a do-gooder and you're the kind of person who doesn't give a lot of grace. You very quickly um, aren't that compassionate because, gosh darn it, you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you've become a good person. Why can't he too? Instead, 
in confession, we're brought to a place where we recognize that God is the one who has to save us. And boy, it feels good to be saved when we don't deserve it. And maybe it's time to extend that to somebody else. The last thing, we skipped over um, one of the parts of the text. Just mentioned it a little bit. It's, we deceive ourselves. You see, the thing um, that we've mentioned is that a person who's a, an antinomian or a, a relativist or a do-good really doesn't know that they have sin. They've deceived themselves. You can't be deceived if you know that you're wrong. They really believe this. This is really actually how they function. And if you've been following me and I've said, hey, I think that all of us, to some extent, especially in American culture, have a little bit of the relativist in us, a little bit of the do-gooder if we're, you know, good Christians inside of us. What if, what if we've deceived ourselves? What if we actually are the kind of people who are like, I used the wrong fork, I'm so sorry, God. What if we really are the kind of people who are like, well, whatever, just so long as I'm in line with my values, you know? What if that's who we've become and we don't even know it? What if we've deceived ourselves into believing that we have no sin? What do we do? How can we... Well, this is the takeaway, I think, today. This is, this is what you, you, you want to you wanna bring with you. Because if, you, if you're with me, you recognize that your peace, your joy in this life comes from being able to confess well. But you might not know what you have to confess. That's the last thing on the, the, the note sheets is you, you can't confess if you don't know you have sin. You can't confess to sin you don't know about. Um, have, has anyone ever done a self-evaluation? I love doing self-evaluations because it, tur- it turns out I'm great. Like, uh, yeah, um, I'm, uh, I, I, teach, um, I teach grad students, and occasionally my, um, my supervisors will be like, well, let's, um, you know, how are you doing? I'm like, well, uh, 10, 10, 10, 9, okay, but really 10. 10, 10, 10. Love self-evals. Um, they're awesome. What I hate are student evaluations. Those punks. Do they have any idea what I do for them? Seriously, I I agree. They turn their papers in at midnight on Sunday. I have those things back for them by 6 p.m. the next day. 50 students, I do this because I'm awesome. And when they and when they they come at me, they're just like, oh yeah, did you notice this? I'm like, what? Come on. Well, what about this? Really? That's what yeah, okay. Fair enough. Or um, have any of you um, been really close to someone like married? If any of you have been married, um, you, have, you live with somebody who can tell you all kinds of things about you that you don't like. <laughs> and if you, I mean, wow, uh, gosh, you just don't know how bad you are until, <laughs> until you, oh, well, I guess. Um, I think a lot of us probably are in a place where maybe we've been, you know, fooled into becoming relativists or do-getters. We're simply not aware of the places that we are broken. We're simply not aware of the things that we really do need to bring before God and have Him change. We're, we're, we want to because we really do want the eternal life that we're promised. And when I say that, don't talk about heaven. I'm just talking about living out your heavenly future right now. That robust, joyful, satisfying life. We want that. And it looks like we, John's telling us we need to confess to get it. And yet we don't know what we need to confess. So here's the homework assignment. Here's the takeaway. The wounds of a friend are faithful. This is, I think, Proverbs 27.6. 
But it's a true thing. Once uh, in seminary, um, I, I typically would just sleep till noon um, because that's what you do in your 20s in the 21st century. <laughs> anyway, um, my buddy Mike uh, came over one day and uh, normally what he would do in the morning is sort of tidy up for me and bring me some coffee. Um, it was a really great relationship. I like him a lot. And, uh, and he said, Tom, uh, I need you to sit up. And so, oh, yes. He's like, listen, this is great. I know you're having a lot of fun. Um, but here's the deal. I need you because you help me study, so I'm willing to do this. But there's going to come a point in your life when uh, you're sort of going to have to own it. You know, you're going to have to be like a responsible, grown-up human being. And if you don't start now, you are going to be in a whole lot of trouble in the future. Oh, Mike, how could you? This relationship was perfect until you came along and told the truth and helped me see something about myself that I hate. And now I've confronted it and I've got to think about it. So I hold up in my room for several hours, not doing anything productive. But in that time, I came to a recognition that I needed to change, that I needed to be different. And that's a Mickey Mouse example. That's a cute example. But there are things in your life that are probably radically disordered. There are things in my life that are radically disordered. And what every single one of us needs is a faithful friend who will tell us the truth. Somebody who's willing to hurt us to let us know what we really need. That's really hard to find these days because we live in a world of relativists who say, well, as long as you're in keeping with your values, you're okay. Instead, what I'm asking every person here to do this week is to find one trusted person. It could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a child. They're very honest. Um, it could be anyone. But it's got to be someone that you trust. And I'm asking every single person here to say, look, evaluation time. What is it that's keeping me from being close to God? What is it that I need to own? What is it that I need to admit what is it that I need to confess? Because I suspect that I don't know. And I'm worried that it's preventing me from having the life that God has called me to have. Now, when we're doing this, um, because we're all soft, uh, we're snowflakes now, that's the new term for young people, um, and all of us, we're, we're weak and we're easily offended, uh, so it's very important when we do this, when we make this practice, as soon as you tell, if you're the one who gets to tell someone what's wrong with them, be like, okay, I'm running away now, and just give them some space. So you, you go ahead, and if, you, if someone invites you to tell the, the truth about them, you do it as nicely as you can, with as much kindness as possible, and then you run away. So that they have a chance to sit with it. Because I'm not asking you to tell them something that's like, oh, well, you know, um, sometimes your hair's not combed just right. That's no. If, if, that's, if that's the advice you're giving, be like, some, find someone else who knows you better. But once you do it, once you do it, I want you to walk and give them a chance to sit with it, to own it, and then to confess it. If you take this challenge and you let someone tell the truth about you, you have to promise but you're not going to let it affect your relationship. Doug and I do this. Doug and I tell the truth to each other sometimes. Not very often, because it's so scary. But when we do, there are rules. There are rules, and the rule is, Doug, I love you. No matter what you say, I love you, and that's not going to change. We're going to take some time, we're going to own it, we'll let the heart bleed a little bit, and then we're going to come back and we're going to be tighter than we were before. Because the wounds of a friend are faithful.
So brothers and sisters, don't be a do-gooder. Those guys are no fun. Don't be a relativist because they're crazy. Don't be an antinomian because they're even crazier. Instead, find someone who is willing to tell you the truth and then go before God and confess. If you do, he will be faithful, he will be just, and you will have a deeper, more robust peace of the eternal life that you can live. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will not be people who claim no sin. Instead, God, we pray that we will be people who are courageous and willing to recognize our sin and to confess it. God, I pray for those of us um, who are blinded that you will send your spirit and your light uh, to reveal to us what we need to know. That you will um, give us the, the, the courage and, and, the, and the willingness to hear it and to own it. That you will increase the love that we have for the close person who's willing to say it. God, I pray that um, we as a people will become confessors that we as a culture will begin to confess, that we'll own our darkness before you, that we'll set you back where you belong as king and ruler of the universe. And that in that, the, the, the angst and the conflict and the division that we experience as people, that, that you'll overcome it as we become more compassionate and more gracious, having been humbled and receiving your compassion and your grace. All these things we lift to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.